Rich and Steve on Arizona Sports Saturday. Arizona Sports, the local sports leader. Happy Saturday, everybody. This is Arizona Sports Saturday. It's your weekend stop for live and local sports talk. Mitch Vereldis, joined as always by Steve Zinsmeister and Trevor Henry behind the glass. We're with you for the next two hours here in the Auction Community Studios. And I want to start with a humble brag to you, Steve. To me or about me? To you. I'd prefer it be about me. You, I most certainly think you would wish it was about you because yesterday. I often do. Yesterday, I came in a little later than usual. I had a different schedule for work yesterday. Okay. And one of the things that I do in my daily routine is, we talked about it last week, but we play a game to both of us and many others called Immaculate Grid. I'm familiar. You came up to me and you told me. You got the lowest rarity score you've ever had. Uh, probably. I don't really keep track, but I think it was. At a 56, right? 54, something around there? or something like that. And hours later, when I was finally able to do the grid, I got a rarity score of a 42. You topped me. I had to top Steve Zinsmeister at well, his own game. It. You did it. You've reached your peak now. This is... That is <laughs> you have reached the <laughs> pinnacle of broadcasting. <laughs> if nothing else, that is definitely where I have peaked. Well, congratulations, dude. Probably the entirety of the week. I'm going to have to do the new one. I'll do it here in the break. Uh, it was a tricky one today. Okay. it's It required a lot more uh, history than it did. I'll uh, keep you posted. Matching up teams and players. Uh, speaking of reaching a peak for the week, I'd probably say the Arizona Cardinals fit in that category. Cardinals trail 17-16. Blau inside handoff. DiMercato trying the right side, moving the pile and into the end zone. Two-point conversion of Mari DiMercato. Muscles his way across the goal line. I mean, you're not going to have an opportunity in overtime to take a lead, so you might as well try and leave with the win, right? Yeah. 18-17. I final. love that they went for two. Um, I mean, maybe that was never in doubt, but I, it just gives you this immediate sense of where the coaching staff and this regime kind of resides. Mm-hmm. I know it's preseason. It wouldn't have mattered if they went for two and didn't get it. it. It wouldn't have mattered. Just the fact that they went for two, it really instills part of that culture that we've been talking about. And I don't love talking about building culture in the preseason or in training camp because you never know if that's going to carry over to wins in the sure. regular season. But it does kind of give you the vibe of who Jonathan Gannon is. And I, I loved what I saw out of them last night in terms of going for it at yeah. the end of the game. Okay, we'll, we'll emphasize this probably for the next three weeks until the preseason is done. It's just the preseason. But it is also our first opportunity to kind of judge and gauge what is happening with this new regime. And in my opinion, and it sounds like you somewhat agree, so far so good. And... Backs against the wall last night, and <laughs> David Blau in the post game, even talking about that two minute drill that he ran to success, to great success last night. There was a lot to like about last night's Cardinals win, despite not seeing anything massively impactful from the people we expect to see most of this season. Yeah, and if I could go back to that two point conversion for a second. Uh, I think Jackson Barton was the offensive lineman who essentially carried the running back into the end zone. I don't want to take any credit away from the running back, but hmm. uh, but when it comes to pushing a guy an extra three yards to get into the end zone, uh, Jackson Barton really was kind of the, the unsung hero of that play. So yeah. I want to give him some credit there, too. Um, plenty of great things from last night. And in watching uh, kind of the reaction notes from our Cardinals insider, Tyler Drake, after the game, who we're going to talk to a little bit later, 
Um, one of the ones that he and I both agreed on was the pass rush. Now, you didn't get a lot of plays in preseason game number one from your key pass rushers. In no. fact, there were a lot of key players that just didn't play in the game last night. Right. But you do get to see a little bit of Zayvon Collins in his new position, something that you and I were keeping an eye on when we were out at training camp for the red-white scrimmage last Saturday, something that we talked a lot about. Um, so you get a little bit of a taste there. Dennis Gardak had a really awesome sack and forced fumble on Russell Wilson. And then a fun little dance afterwards. <laughs> a fun little dance. <laughs> Dennis Gardak is is such an odd case to me because I think he's really, really good at what he does. Yes. He just never gets a full sample size. Like He's never been a full-time pass rusher. No. He's been like the forever special teams guy and then, oh, Chandler Jones is hurt and, oh, I don't remember who else the outside linebacker was at the time, but oh, he got hurt. And now Dennis Gardak and Hassan Reddick are your edge rushers for the rest of the season. And it's weird, but to your point, it works out pretty well because Dennis Gardak has been very efficient when given the opportunity. Right. That's the thing. As little as he plays, he still comes up with a lot of production. And it makes me curious in a year like this where you're kind of in a transition year for the pass rush and the defensive line in, in general. Could Dennis Gardeck be a two, three-down pass rusher for the Arizona Cardinals? But the problem is, and this is a good problem to have, by the way. Sure. The problem for Gardeck is that you've got probably the deepest pass rush room they've had in a while. That doesn't mean that anybody stands out, though. No. Gardeck, while not an elite pass rusher, is in a good room. He's got other guys. I, I can't wait to see B.J. Ojulari, who they drafted pretty high in this past draft. He did not play last night. Um, Cam Thomas had a sack last night. I think he's going to be really good. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of filling that Zach Allen type role. Zach Allen was in town, by the way, last night with the Broncos. Yeah, hey, long time no see. Um, who else do you have? My Jay Sanders, who I don't think played last night. I'm so, trying to pull up because Ty pointed out who didn't. Right. And so, there were a couple. There's an interesting room there with Collins and Gardeck and Thomas and Sanders and Ojolari. There's a lot of good pass rushers, guys who are edge rushers. It's just which one of them is going to eclipse all others and play the majority of the time or will they be rotating constantly for energy purposes i don't know who of them is a standout like could have a chance at 10 sacks i don't know if any of those guys reaches that level Mm -hmm. Um, but i am very intrigued by the pass rush so here are the names that tyler pointed out and then there was a slight correction but i'm looking at the snap counts too and i'm not seeing anything from kaiser or white so that has to be taken into somewhat of an account but as you mentioned, B.J. Ojulari and Mai J. Sanders. He also mentioned Kaiser White, but then retracted Jeff Driscoll and Keontae Ingram. So defensively speaking, that's two linebackers that you kind of expect a lot out of or anticipate a lot out of this season who didn't see any action last night. Mentioned Dennis Gardeck. He got seven snaps. Zayvon Collins got seven snaps. Like there wasn't a lot of opportunity for the guys we expected to get those opportunities. And then Isaiah Simmons, and I'm I'm sure this is just an NFL thing, but listed as a linebacker last night for some reason on the snap counts. He was only out there for 14. Like, we we can only gauge so much. But I, I keep going back to Gardeck because in what he was able to do in the short amount of time, it seemed incredibly impactful. One of my favorite podcasters, I guess is what you would call him, Ryan Russillo, has a great line that he uses about summer league games in the NBA because he's more of an NBA guy. I know this line and I love it. Where he, it, I, Correct me if I'm wrong, but it's something along the lines of summer league can only confirm what I already believe. Yeah. Like I only allow preseason and summer league to confirm my 
thoughts that I've already formulated. But I don't it, allow them to change my opinion. If it on goes a in the opposite direction, just ignore it. It's right? Just yeah, a it's pre-season. just preseason. <laughs> but if I'm right, I'd love to be even more right and confirm that. So it's something that I also kind of apply to the NFL preseason is I watched last night and I see some great moments. I mean, we talked about the pass rush. So Cam Johnson, mm-hmm. uh, Cam Thomas, Thomas is sack, not Cam Johnson. I miss Cam him. Tom. Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> I had to pause for a second. We got too many cams in the Valley these days and now no some of them gone. Um, but yeah, no, definitely the pass rush, something I was looking at Clayton tune. I was uh, excited to see him get an opportunity. Looked he throws it first, but then he made up for it. That's the thing is if you can find a way to settle down after having a, your first NFL moment be as bad as his was. I mean, the receiver fell down. I think it was Rondale Moore. Yeah, fell Rondale down. slipped and Bassey got the pick. So that's not totally his fault. Right. But Who knows what would have happened if he had been on recover from that? And clearly he did because he was able to. Or formulate a touchdown drive a few plays later. I think that speaks volumes of a quarterback. Um, I think Paris Johnson looked fantastic in his time on the field. Yes. Um, I know that he's expected to be the starting right tackle right now. And that's what he primarily did last night. Love it. I think he's an elite level tackle prospect. That's not the same as saying an elite level NFL tackle. That's going to take obviously some playing time and we're going to have to see what he's got. Um, but he's a guy I watched every single one of his college games at Ohio State just being a Buckeye fan. This is as good of a tackle prospect as you will find. And I wouldn't be shocked if someday down the road, DJ Humphreys, if he's gone or whatever, uh, Paris Johnson's going to be an established tackle for this team for a long, long time. Uh, I really liked what I saw from Keytrell Clark. Yeah. Rookie, I think sixth round pick. In a cornerback room that doesn't necessarily have a lot of clarity right now. Right. And I was actually going to bring up a different name going off of that because Antonio Hamilton, I don't know if you noticed, Steve, he didn't even see action until the second half. And he got the second most snaps on defense. But again, they were all in the second half. Right. The guy who was basically your number two corner could have been the number one a year ago, if not for a freak injury. And here he is now, maybe not going to be in the first group of corners because you've got this talented rookie. Yeah, it's an odd cornerback room. I actually I don't like the cornerback room this year. That's not to say I don't like the individuals. It's just I think it's one of the weaker cornerback rooms. You know they've what they ever need? Had. Malcolm Butler. Never mind. No, oh, yeah, no. Don't bring that up. No, I'm good. Um, but Keytro Clark made some athletic plays. There is one pass breakup uh, that he went fully vertical for. Uh, excuse me, horizontal for. And I was in, astounded with the athleticism that that play took. Uh, Hamilton's INT was big. Um, so a lot of units standing out units that I think a lot of people are looking at this year and they're like, I don't really know any of those guys in the pass rush. I don't really know any of those guys in the cornerback room. And they both shined in preseason game number one. And in reality, the most significant player that I think you or I wanted to watch, he's not going to be available for a significant amount of time. Kyler Murray. Yeah. And you know what? For the most part, the quarterback play seemed to go just fine last night. You have... Clayton Toon bouncing back from a rough outing with the interception. That wasn't, as we discussed, not totally his fault. And then you got David Blau executing a near-perfect two-minute drill to close out the game and lead to an eventual win. Lots to like. Curious to see if it carries over next week when they host the Chiefs. Mm. As we know, Andy Reid does like to give his starters time as well, so there right. could be some some pretty aggressive action from the Chiefs early on, the reigning Super Bowl champs. Coming up next, one Valley team won. The other Valley team 
They might have more problems than we're thinking about. We'll tell you what they are next on Arizona Sports Saturday. Mitch and Steve on Arizona Sports Saturday. Arizona Sports, the local sports leader. Here's the 0-1 pitch to it. Matt base it up the middle. He's got his fourth hit of the night. Rounding third, coming to the plate is Soto. Carroll's throw will be cut off. And that makes it a 10-5 Padre lead. So they've answered back with three of their own here against McGuff of the Diamondback bullpen. A brutal stretch for the Arizona Diamondbacks. Nine straight losses. Nine times? Nine times. Only five wins since the All-Star break, which was over a month ago. <laughs> five wins in a month? It's, it's laughable at this point, five. is it not? Yeah. Okay. It, can I point something out? Brutal. You go back to July 6th. Okay. They lost to the Mets 9 nothing. That date was significant for two reasons, Steve. Do you know why? I don't. Number one. That was the first time the Diamondbacks were shut out this season. Oh, okay. That's one. Number two, that was also the first time the Diamondbacks had been swept all season. Oof. Since that date, add on four more times swept and three more times shut out. Yeah. In a month. You know, it's funny because I think there's a lot of people that are looking to point the finger. They're trying to figure out, who do we blame for this? I mean, I've got ten fingers. I'm I'm ready to spread them if I have to. I was reading uh, AZ Central this week had an article. Here's another one uh, just a couple of hours ago posted. Arizona Diamondbacks fans call for manager Tori Lovello to be fired amid team's collapse. Listen, are they going through a rough stretch? Absolutely. It's one of the worst I've seen in a long time. There's no doubt about it. Something needs to change. If you want to have a Tori Lovello conversation, are you going to fire him midseason? Are you going to wait until the end of the season? Does a new voice even help? You know, it's funny. I went through, uh, I think Fox Sports had this interesting uh, research done last season because there were a couple of teams that cut bait with their managers last year. Yeah. I want to say the Angels and Joe Madden, uh, Chris Woodward got fired last season. There were a couple of them. There were a couple significant ones. Uh, yeah. Toronto moved on from Montoya at some point, uh, or Charlie Montoya. Um, anyway, they went back all the way to the year 2000 and evaluated all the managers that have been fired with 75 or more games left in the season. Okay, since 2000, I can't remember how many there were, but it was it was like in the 30s or 40s, something like that. Yeah, and then they evaluated was the team better. Just about the same or worse after they hired a new manager midseason. And only two times since the year 2000 that this happened did the team get worse. So there is an argument that making a managerial change could help dramatically. Look what happened with the Phillies last year and they go get Thompson. That's why you make a manager change, right? Well, it's because you need something to reignite the team. Well, it's right now this this the fire is out, Steve. Right. They've had to the point of July 6th. Seven wins. Seven. It's incredibly difficult to get worse than that. That's why it's so rare that you replace the manager and the team gets worse. Because yes. you're already at rock bottom if you're firing your manager. Yeah, like season. how much worse could it possibly get at that point? Here, though, is the reason that I would not fire Tory Lavelle at this point in the season. And we'll evaluate the end of the season when we get there. If this continues on the way it it's going right now. Like if they don't win another game for the rest of the year, then we got to have a conversation. I mean, they're winless this month, right? They're about to play their 10th game this month and they still don't have a win. Here's how I evaluate coaches. Do the players still trust them? 
do they still want to play for them? Mm -hmm. Because as you and I both know, we've had so many coaches come through the Valley in the last, I don't know, just five to ten years. And I think back on some of them and I'm like, the players never fully trusted that individual. I don't think the players uh, for the Suns ever really trusted Earl Watson. He was considered a player's coach in a lot of ways. I'm putting that in air quotes. But that doesn't necessarily mean players trusted them to make the right decisions. Right. And I don't want to just label it just on Earl. I think it, a lot of it, I mean, Steve Wilkes. Uh, we've uh, seen plenty of coaches come through in the past decade. On some level, Cliff Kingsbury. Yeah. I don't think Cliff Kingsbury, while he was a player's coach and players wanted to play for him, I don't think they ever fully trusted him in a lot of ways. Tori Lovello, I have always felt, is trusted by his players. Just the other day, Corbin Carroll, who is now the Diamondbacks' best player and superstar, he went on Mookie Betts' podcast, and yeah. Mookie straight up asked him, hey, why did you sign long-term with the Diamondbacks? It was almost a disrespectful question in some ways. Why did you feel comfortable with the Diamondbacks as an organization? You haven't even played yet for them. Why sign the long deal? And Corbin, basically, the first thing out of his mouth was Tory, mm. Because when I was injured for a full season and hadn't played... Tori called me all the time to check in on me. When I was playing in the complex league and trying to get my legs back under me, Tori was there all the time checking in, just showing up out of the blue. I think that the players still love and trust Tori. And that's not necessarily enough to keep a, a bad manager around. It respectfully shouldn't be. And I'm not calling him a bad manager. No. I'm just saying like that shouldn't be enough for any manager to stick around necessarily. But I think that this team still trusts Tori. I don't think this is necessarily his fault. Look, Why are we holding him to playoff expectations when we didn't have playoff expectations for this team to begin with? Because I think they got to a point this season that none of us expected, and when they got to it, we wanted to keep it that way. Remember, this was a first-place team in the National League West at one point this year. They are now currently two games under five hundred on a nine-game losing streak and have a negative 26 run differential for a team that was at one point the best in the National League West. Like... That it was gone. And I think that really irked a lot of fans. And it's getting magnified to a T because almost every bullpen related collapse has been put on Tory. And yes, the players are responsible for doing their jobs too, but it's also on the manager to put the right guys out there for each situation. Like, take for example, literally two days ago when Kevin Ginkle is about to finish up his second inning of work. And Tory takes him out for the lefty-lefty matchup against Freddie Freeman. In my personal opinion, why in the world would you try to play the matchup game against the man who's literally hitting almost 350 this year? Do you think he's having a hard time against left-handed hitting or left-handed pitching? I don't think so. I don't think it really matters. I think you stick with the hot hand in that scenario. So that's one. And then every other bullpen-related decision before they got Paul Seawald had been magnified as well. And I think that's where a lot of the frustration has lied. Yeah, the offense. Freddie Freeman is, actually hits better against lefties. <laughs> he's hitting 354 this I, season. I mean, if you want to further cement my point, there yeah. it is. He's right actually there. slugging almost 150 points higher against lefties than he is righties. And then you can make the argument of, oh, okay, well, we've got Max Muncie and then David Peralta right after that. So even if you can't get Freddie, they've got two other lefties. Well, guess what? It ended up with you guys losing. So maybe correct that next time. Okay, here's my rebuttal. Because you're right about the Freddie Freeman thing, and I'm sure there's other examples of bad game management. But every manager's got those. Every every manager deals with bad game management. I've yes. got that. Here's my rebuttal to your argument about being in first place, being atop the NL at some point. 
when you and I had discussions at that point in the season, when they were in first place, were you a bit baffled that they were in that position this season of all seasons? Sure, but I was baffled. Was by, I baffled at, the, at that point I've, in the season? I've been baffled by plenty of other teams in the positions they're in right now. It wasn't that we expected them to be there. No. They just were, and we were all looking at each other like, oh my gosh, we're, like, we're in first place right now? How yeah. does that work? So if we didn't have expectations for them to be there, then why are we holding the manager to the expectation that they had to maintain that level of play? I think the argument could be in favor of because you got them there, so stay there. And the fact that they're collapsing at the rate that they are almost doubles the magnification on the manager. How many teams okay. go wire to wire first place, though? Okay. What was your expectation for the Baltimore Orioles this year? Uh, I thought they were kind of like the D-backs. They were, they were a young team Sneaky that was probably team, going right? to improve. Yeah. Sneaky wildcard Sneaky team. Sneaky wildcard team. They're the second best team in Major League Baseball this year. Yeah. And they took control of the American League East in July, and they haven't looked back. And you know why? Because part of it being is that the team hasn't crapped out for one. And number two, their manager's not making silly decisions or decisions that look terrible in hindsight. Who's their manager? Brandon Hyde. Is he the best manager in baseball? He's not the best manager in baseball, but he makes it look like he's known well, he's what done he's doing. One of, he's done one of the best jobs in baseball this he's year. Working is he with not the team. best manager? He's working with a team that was not expected to be where it is, and See, look I, where they are now. I think the Orioles, it's because their players are playing well. The Diamondbacks players are not playing well. And on some level, you have to hold the coach accountable for that. I'm not denying that. I think that there's definitely going to have to be changes made if this trend continues for the Diamondbacks. But I don't think that it's as simple as you have a good manager or a bad manager. I think there's a lot more nuance to it. But you you were just leading off the segment with explaining that sometimes a manager midseason switch almost always leads to greater success. And it's either more success or a wash. They're about even in how many times they happen. But then in the following season. It's so rare for it to be lost because in you're the already following really season bad. is what I'm more curious about. We'll use the Phillies for an example because Joe Girardi got fired end of May, beginning of June. Right. They made it all the way to the World Series with Rob Thompson. True. As a wild card team. It's true. Right now they're the first wild card right now in Rob Thompson's first full year and with an incredibly bad season out of their big acquisition of the offseason in Trey Turner. And yet they are still. 13 games above 500 and have the first wild card spot right now in a very hefty American League East that is getting trounced by Atlanta. Like, that speaks volumes to me. To get off of what was the big name hire at the time, to turn around midseason, make it all the way to the World Series, and then in your follow-up season as a manager, you've now got a team in prime position to make the playoffs again. So maybe a coaching change is necessary. So you want a coaching change midseason? I didn't say that. I said a coach. You're building the argument, though. I'm building the argument because you're in favor of them keeping him. I am. And I don't totally feel that way. So maybe I do. Maybe I do want a coaching change. And maybe you do need somebody that can help elevate this team to the next level. Because I don't know if I've seen it from Tori. The other thing that can happen, too, by the way, is you could have a manager that you fire midseason. You bring in a new manager and it's worse. An example of that. 2004. The Arizona Diamondbacks fire Bob Brenly midseason. He went from a 367 winning percentage, what, which is not good. You're going to knock down Al Padrique? Al Padrique, 265. They got much worse. Don't do that to Al. There's not a lot of examples of that, but there, it happens. There was nothing for him to do. It happened here in the desert. Don't knock Al Padrique. Dave Burns would not be happy with you right now. <laughs> Coming up next, two very much deserving superstars for the Phoenix Suns. Going into the Ring of Honor. 
It's about time. What took so long? Next on Arizona Sports Saturday. Mitch Ferelvis, Steve Zinsmeister, Arizona Sports Saturday. Arizona Sports, the local sports leader. Yeah. And how did you feel? Like, how did that make you feel? I mean, I mean, listen, man, you know, again, you know, keep it 100, man. You know, it was like, uh, what, what was the holdup? <laughs> <laughs> that was Sean Marion, The Matrix, on with Burns and Gambo earlier this week, reacting to being one of the next two Phoenix Suns to be put in the ring of honor. <laughs> that may be one of as the funniest as, moments on this station. As I've best heard as in a Matrix could say it. What was the holdup? What was the holdup? <laughs> no, what got me when he said keep it 100. Yeah. It's like, we're, we're going to be real for a second. <laughs> and, what uh, was ownership thinking by not putting me in the ring of honor <laughs> sooner than today? Marion actually went on to say good things about the new owner of the Suns. A guy who's, uh, who's trying to buy, he's trying to win it right now. You know, I think he's, you know, he's an excited new owner and he's about restoring the, the true legacy of the, of the Valley of the Suns, man, the Phoenix Suns, man. And uh, everything, I think with the, in the community, everything, all the above. So before I keep burying the lead, if you, didn't already know, Amari Stoudemire and Sean Marion will be the newest members of the Phoenix Suns Ring of Honor. Both of them will each get their separate night of Love honor that. sometime during this upcoming regular season. More on that a little bit later. But it really stood out to me what Sean said in particular about how Ishbia is trying to keep the old traditions of the Suns alive. This was one of those very, very overdue moves that needed to be done by the Suns organization to get Amari and Sean in the ring of honor. And Ishbia has not even been on the job for a full year. And this is now the latest and many great things that Matt Ishbia has accomplished in his short time as the owner. Well, and I'm guessing that Matt Ishbia learned this lesson in business that I'm about to describe to you because I've learned it over the years of my career already. And that is that when you have new leadership, whether that's an owner of a team or a CEO or a president of a company or, or anything like that, usually there is some sort of stamp that they make fairly early on in their tenure that establishes this is about like this is what I'm contributing. This mm-hmm. is my legacy. Yeah. And so they're going to change some things. You have to find the right balance, though, with a sports franchise of here's what my regime will look like versus here's what I'm doing to honor the past. Yeah. And I feel like Sarver tried many times to do the former, to find this is my legacy. This is my legacy. No, that didn't work. This is my legacy. Okay, let's throw this at the wall and see if this sticks. This might be my legacy. Whereas Matt Ishbia came in and he made it in the first 12 hours as owner, he made the decision to trade for Kevin Durant. That was his legacy. Yep. Right out of the gate. Right out of the gate. The Bradley Beal thing comes later, but right out of the gate, Kevin Durant is the big move. That's a legacy builder. That's the new era of Matt Ishbia basketball for the Phoenix Suns. This is his way of going and doing the other, the latter of the two things that I suggested, which is establishing traditions that have long held and reaffirming the love for the organization. This organization has not done a good job in the past, by the way. Of doing that. Dan Marley was barely welcomed. Dare I say not welcomed within the Suns organization after everything blew up where he should have probably been the future coach of the team. And he wasn't. And that was a Sarver decision. Yep. Jerry Colangelo wasn't in the building for a lot of those years because he wasn't welcome. Also should be in the ring of honor, by the way. 
Jerry not in the Ring of Honor? I don't believe he is. Okay, I'll look that up. Anyway. Something else that needs to be touched on. Anyway. There's just so many people that went away and haven't really come back. Uh, I, I don't know. I feel like I haven't really seen much of Steve Nash. I know a lot of that has to do with the fact that he was an NBA coach, and he was with the Warriors, he was with the Nets. So, I mean, but this starts to reestablish that connect- connection to possibly the greatest era of Suns basketball. I know there was the 93 team that went to the finals, but the seven seconds or less Suns is the most fun version and the version that you and I, like our era grew up, like our generation grew up in that era. A lot of people older than us grew up in the 90s with that era. Right. So I love that they're doing this for Matrix. By the way, I'm very dumb. Of course, Colangelo's in the Ring of Honor. What the yeah, heck I thought I he was. I was thinking of the Diamondbacks, which is a different story for a different day. Probably but, should be up in there, too. But there's something else that comes with... You mentioned Ishbia making sure that he recognizes the sons of the past while also cementing his own legacy. He has another chance to do that with this honoring of the past. Because it also sounds like that the Ring of Honor is going to be redone. Oh, okay. In a sense. Whereas before, with the new renovations to the arena, it was just kind of like an LED ribbon right, around yeah, the they arena. Can put up whatever they want. That's not really as impactful, right? It's not permanent. So it sounds like that they're putting something together that is cemented and will be there for the next generation of Suns fans to behold rather than, oh, it's just rotating between some. You know, like chicken ad. It's or not something. a graphic. Yeah, yeah. Let's put it in ink. Ink. Well, you know what I mean. It's more like of a etch it into a wall. Yeah, let's carve it in stone. Let's get some plaques. Let's do some of that. I, you know, it's funny. I grew up uh, in high school. I lived in Dallas, and I went to a lot of Texas Rangers games growing up. Uh, and their Hall of Fame was more of like a museum, or their like Ring of Honor, whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it. I forget what they call it. Everything's but, bigger in Texas, so that well, there sense. is that. But they also have like so many great names from the 90s, early 2000s, all that stuff. But so do the Suns. And so I would love to see some sort of, not a museum, but I mean, I guess kind of like a museum. Like a wing? Do you like, remember, yeah. You remember the Diamondbacks 20th anniversary and they redid that that outfield center field area behind um, behind the big scoreboard and right, underneath yeah. they had that little museum? Right maybe in front of the like, gym? Maybe like something like that for the Suns, but to the permanent. Level rather than something yeah. that you can take apart after a year. Or two. I think it'd be cool. Teach everybody about the past. I mean, I know that they have plenty of stuff on the concourse level. They've got timelines and they've got, you know, graphics of the players and their actual heights and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, I think an established wing would be really cool. And I think this is super well deserved. Matrix is right. It took too long for this to come to pass. And uh, for guys like Amari and Matrix who are, they're done. I mean, their playing careers are over. Yeah. Long so done. It, they're not going to get any. <laughs> better i guess in the argument <laughs> their so. case is not going to get any stronger it's no. it's the hall of fame vote argument every single year that you and i go through with baseball right yeah um amari stoudemire was a guest of bickley murata mornings yesterday the when he found out i i couldn't get enough of this when he found out i'll let him describe it i was actually out celebrating my son's birthday the exact same day i got the call um so you know and and, and so uh matt called me and said hey amari we got some good news for you and he was saying that we're gonna we're gonna honor you, man. Long overdue, very well respected, but you deserve to be in the Ring of Honor. And at that moment, I was like so excited. I'm like, this is my son's birthday. My son's name after me. I'm going to the Ring of Honor all the same day. It was like a beautiful moment. So out of all the years of not really getting that call and to get that call on my son's birthday was was very special for me. Hopefully, Amari Jr. didn't have his thunder taken from him. <laughs> yeah, Amari Jr. is like this sucks. <laughs> Everybody's paying it's supposed to be my birthday. It's supposed to be about me. What the heck? I can't even have my own name.
So that's really cool. Really excited. I'm curious what nights they're going to do those Ring of Honor ceremonies. Yeah. Well, like, there's some big games. Like I'm trying up. to think, too. Would you do it, say, would you do it the night the Knicks are in town? For Amari? If the Knicks come in? Would you oh. do it the night that the Mavericks come in for Matrix? If that is back of your mind? I don't, like, do you plan it that way? Or do I you just say, think you I like this date way. the most? No, yeah, I don't think you plan it that way. I think first what you probably do is you reach out to the player again and you say, hey, what works best for you? I don't even know where they, I don't know if they live here in the Valley. I imagine right. that they might not. Um, so for travel purposes, I think you would ask them what, what works for them. Maybe you give them a list of, hey, we've got, here's 10 home games that we have within a, a certain amount of months. And uh, maybe you pick one of those. I'd leave it up to them if, if possible, but you also got to look at other promotions that they have scheduled and they got to work around a bunch Which of schedules. We're still waiting on, but that perfectly sets us up for what we were going to talk about next. So we don't know the schedule yet, the full one anyway. Sounds like it's going to drop sometime next week. Okay. So hopefully we'll get to know the full 82 game slate for Devin Booker, Kevin Durant, Bradley Beal, their first season as a trio, DeAndre Ayton, if you want to do a quartet. But we do know they're going to be playing opening night, according to Sham Sharania. Phoenix Suns at Golden State as the follow-up to Los Angeles Lakers at Denver Nuggets, the season opener October 24th on TNT. Okay, so initial thoughts. Yes. Kevin Durant's former team. First time. Paul's former team. First time he's playing at Chase Center in front of fans since departing from the Warriors. Really? In front of fans. Okay. And he's never been healthy in returns to the Bay. So that's interesting. What reception does Durant get? Yep. Chris Paul against his former team in the Suns, the team that he went to the finals does with. Does he start the game? Does he enter yeah. later in the game? Steve Kerr, former Suns GM, is yeah. the head coach of the Warriors. So there's another tie. Steph Curry, a player that the Suns very much wanted to draft and didn't. Which offense is going to move faster? That's a good question. I wonder. Because you've got Booker, Beal, and Durant, and you've Bunch of dudes that are ready and wide open to shoot something. So many good storylines there. There's also the the Clay Thompson Devin Booker drama that's been going on. Well, so it, that seems to be more with Paul George. Yeah, but I mean Clay Thompson's stuck in the middle of it like a monkey. Paul, correct me if I'm wrong because I watched it a few days ago. It was Paul George's podcast. Clay yep. Thompson was a guest. Yep, and Paul George basically asked him about trash talking. And somehow yeah. Booker got brought I, up. I know you did the four rings to the Booker. Yeah, which Clay, he did. And Clay did like a heartfelt apology. Right. About how he legitimately felt bad about, about it. how in his feels he was. Yeah. And Booker saw it on Instagram, gave Clay the, uh, the, the salute, salute emoji and then added Paul George and was like, was that the response you were hoping to get? Yeah. As like, a oh, oh, OK. Right. And like, then Paul George, the next day on his Twitch stream, was asked about it and called it a sorry ass response. Oh, boy. <laughs> so there's some drama there with Paul George. But what's funny about it is Clay Thompson comes off looking pretty good. Like, I actually like Clay Thompson a little bit more after that. I'm like, wow, he showed a lot of respect yeah. to Devin Booker, who, by the way, the two of those guys are arguably two of the best shooting guards in the league over the last decade. Yeah. And so to see them respecting each other like that is pretty cool. So October 24th, opening night, Suns at Golden State. That's fun. Two days later, they're in Los Angeles to take on the Lakers. So the first two games of the Suns season are in Golden State and then in L.A. Yeah, it's a real test right out of the gate. And then Christmas. Home against the Dallas Mavericks. Christmas Day games. Luka. Grant Williams apparently wants to get in on the... 
growing rivalry between these yeah. two teams. It is a re- it is kind of a, a budding rivalry, is it not? I mean, it's not to the level of like the Spurs rivalry all those years ago. Sure, but. It is kind of a fun one with Luka and Devin. Yeah. I'm I'm excited about those games, man. I can't wait to see the full schedule. I'm very much looking forward to this year. Coming up next, significant news out of ASU's Camp T today that we need to pass along to you because it could impact who's going to be throwing the football this year. That's next on Arizona Sports Saturday. Mitch and Steve on Arizona Sports Saturday. Arizona Sports. Leader. We're still not entirely sure who's going to be the starting quarterback for ASU this season. A couple of different options. Jaden Rashada, Drew Pine is one of them. They could go with the guy who started last year, Borgay. Trenton Borgay, yep. Uh, Drew Pine today was hurt. Going to the sideline had to be helped off for evaluation with some type of leg issue. We later found out that was a hamstring issue. I'm reading from the Twitter account of Chris Cartman, by the way. Does a great job covering the team. Uh, Kenny Dillingham did say, quote, minor hamstring tear. Now, minor and tear in the same sentence is a, a weird bit phrasing. oxymoronic, isn't it? So there was a reply. I'm, I'm seeing the same tweet that you are. There was a reply to Cartman's tweet about the, quote, minor hamstring tear, quote, and the team will learn more later. Somebody replied, tear, with multiple question marks, to which Chris said, a muscle strain is a tear. Okay. So I wonder if they okay. saw it as... Minor no, tear. It's actually just a strain, but technically there's a, a little bit of a tear. But it's just using that word tear in sports injuries. It's is, very uncomfortable. Uh, yeah, I know. It's I cringe. I know when I hear that word tear. If it's Ugh. a strain. It's just say strain. I mean, Chris is probably right. <laughs> strain is a tear technically, but yeah, uh, for some reason those two terms feel very very different. I mean, I mean out look, of the mouth. in reality, this could have been way 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 worse. This could have been like, oh, he's. You know, he's ruptured something and he's done. Sure. I mean, when I hear minor, that does not tell me that Drew Pine is going to miss parts of the season. Right. Um, But as you mentioned earlier, this team is up at Camp T, um, a tradition that uh, we all kind of know and love at this point. It's a remarkable visual. It's also incredible for the team bonding experience. Uh, the media loves to go up there. I was just talking with somebody in the newsroom yesterday and I was like, hey, what are you doing this weekend? They're like, "Ah, I might just go up to Camp T. Just casually, just, just casually, just like <laughs> I get off work at four o'clock. I might drive up to Payson, uh, which is not something that most people do on a whim. But no. that's what Camp T means to a lot of people. It means a lot to Kenny Dillingham, too, as he was speaking about it over the weekend. It's different. It's special. I've yet to be at a school that has kind of a home away from home. Right. And it's definitely a home away from home because nothing's changed here ever from the bunks to the rooms to the electricity to the outlets. I mean, this is the same exact dorm room that the video showed in 1988. And this is crazy because the the years that Herm Edwards was the coach at ASU, Camp T kind of felt like an afterthought. Part of that because of covid. And sure, not wanting to emphasize, hey, let's go somewhere and get all close and snug to one another while this this virus is going around. But at the same time, it didn't feel like that Herm Edwards was all that amped about going up there or if anything, it was we'll just go up there for the day to appease the fans and the alums and blah, blah, blah. Kenny Dillingham is taking the full on. No, no, we're embracing Camp T approach. They went up midway through the week and they're going to be there through Sunday like he's. Taking it 
full on. And I really, really like that. Yeah, we talked uh, last segment about Matt Ishbia trying to establish his own legacy versus, you know, going back and celebrating the past in Matrix and, and Amari, right? And Kenny Dillingham feels almost the opposite to me. He does not care about his legacy. He does not want to establish his own legacy. He's 100% behind celebrating past traditions at ASU. Mm-hmm. And that's part of the reason that I think he got the job, aside from being an up-and-coming coach and being really good at uh, you know, the play calling and stuff like that. Right. I think Kenny Dillingham, part of the reason he's here is because of this, because he's going to lean so heavily into tradition and the things that made ASU the program that it is today and the program that these kids wanted to play for. So I, I am not shocked in the least that D- Kenny Dillingham is capitalizing on Camp T. There's about like, and I'm seeing from some of the beat writers that are covering this, I'm seeing close to a couple thousand in attendance up at Camp T. So it almost feels not, not a lot just, of stuff going on. Up doesn't there. feel just like a revival for the team and the players. It feels like a revival for the fans, too. I saw ASU legend Juan Roque is up there, took a picture with um, the great SID Doug Tamaro. Nice. Like this, this feels like a great revival and a much needed reprieve after, I mean, you can encapsulate all the years with Herm Edwards, but particularly last year where this team just really needed a morale boost. And I think they're getting it at Camp T. Yeah. No, you get away from some of the distractions. I mean, it, it's, it's like summer camp. Yeah, it's really what summer camp was for you when you were a kid. It's a chance to get away, a chance to form some new relationships and uh, ultimately build the foundation that this program is going to need throughout the course of a rigorous regular season. Now, I will say this, sticking with the theme of building your own legacy or making sure you're maintaining the old. If if going up to Camp T is maintaining the old, Kenny Dillingham can define his legacy by emphasizing Upgrade to the structural integrity of Camp T. How so? Because he mentioned in the soundbite, like, everything's still like it's 1988. Right. And I get it. There's not a lot of visits to Camp Tantazona for, for I mean, I know they host other events, but the football field, it's just kind of there down a mud road, and you show up and you're like, wow, this is great. It's hard to get, invest in that when you only use it once a year. And you don't get to see the behind-the-scenes stuff going on where the shacks are not necessarily in great condition. You got bunks. There was even a story of a, or a mention of Elijah Badger falling out of his bed one of the nights that they're up there, and it's... Did the bed break, or did he just fall out of the bed? I can't remember specifically, but the point being is like... we've I all done that. I don't, I don't want this team to be put in danger for the sake of no, tradition. it's so, got to be safe. So, like, let's get an upgrade. See, but here's, here's where I'll push back a little bit. Like, yes, it needs to be safe. I don't want any players getting hurt or falling out of their bed because it breaks in the middle of the night. But where I will push back is I do think that not having camp in the cushiest environment can be a good thing. Because how many times have we talked about Camp Cupcake? Well, I, okay. With the Arizona Cardinals. Can I clarify? I don't mean like cushy. I mean like livable. Make some upgrades. Yeah. I, I get it. I just think there is like an element of this where going to Camp T, part of it is like, okay, you're away from your element. You're, you, you know, you're away from your cell phone for a time. You sure. know, you're, the reception's not that great up there anyway, I'm guessing. Uh, I go camping up there all the time. I think I'm going camping up there next weekend, actually. Ooh. Um, and so it is, it's like going to camp. Like any other camp, right? You don't have the the big screen TV in your room. You don't. You're out of it, man. And coaches embracing it builds the character. Coaches embracing the elements too. I just used a Todd Grahamism. Oh gosh, builds character. Let, let, let's not go back down that road again. We are multiple coaches removed from that gentleman. Fair enough. Um, you got a new job, by the way. Did you see that? 
Really? Yeah, he's coaching at a Christian High School in uh, Oh, that is perfect. The Dallas area that where he came perfect. from. That's perfect for Todd Graham. Todd Graham. All about, you know, Texas and Christianity. There's one other ASU story that we need to bring up. Kind of a, a weird story and a story that I don't know about you, Steve, but it makes me rather angry. Okay. Wide receiver Jake Smith, who played it. T- the last time he played was at Texas in 2020. Wow, didn't play a long in, time ago. Didn't play in 2021 for Texas. Transfers to USC last year. Doesn't get to play in the 2022 season. Now transfers to ASU, and he has uh, a medical. It's a it's a medical non counter because of a foot injury in 2021. And now he's being told by the NCAA that he doesn't get to play for ASU because of some new rules that the NCAA has brought out about double transferring. Yeah, so my general opinion on transfers has been pretty consistent all along. In the very beginning when transfers became more common, I was against it because I just think that when you sign a piece of paper that commits to a university, that there's a level of commitment you should be showing on an individual level. And so I didn't love the idea of transfers. I have since come to the realization that if we're going to allow transfers at the level that we do in the NCAA, and if we allow the coaches to go wherever they want at a moment's notice, the way several coaches have left ASU or even come to ASU in different situations, uh, if we're going to allow that, then we have to allow it. We have to go full on. And so if you're going to allow players to move to their third school before even graduating, then let's be all for it. Let's not restrict those kids. But here's the stipulation, Steve. Because of the medical non-counter, Smith would not have been allowed to play at USC again unless he had or until he had transferred to a new school. So it's either stay at USC and don't get to play another season or transfer somewhere, get to play so that you can then play where you want to. I would assume he would just stay at ASU. He's almost done with his collegiate career anyway. But this is now going to be the third year in a row that this kid is not going to play because of some bleep, to put it bluntly. The NCAA interfering when they don't really need to interfere, in my opinion. Yeah, I think they should let him play. And it goes back to my conversation about the coaches. I mean, if you're going to let the coaches cut bait at a moment's notice, then why can't a kid? Yeah, especially in the evolving age of... Who can get money in this business? And I don't love the message that it sends to our young people that, you know, making a commitment doesn't necessarily mean as much anymore as it used to. Uh, But if the rules are going to be the way that they are, we got to let guys play when they transfer. Coming up next, uh, how do the Arizona Cardinals do in their first preseason action? I know it's preseason, but we're still going to talk about it. Cardinals insider Tyler Drake joins us next on Arizona Sports Saturday.